Hello, and welcome to Learning for Life at Gustavus, the podcast about people teaching and learning at Gustavus Adolphus College. In the myriad ways that Gustavus liberal arts education provides a lasting foundation for lives of fulfillment and purpose. I'm your host, Greg Castor, faculty member in the Department of History. I am a full-time action hero, writes my guest today, Gustavus alum Ellen Goodwin, in the introduction to her book, Done, How to Work When No One is Watching. My action hero skills don't include multiple methods of self-defense, speaking obscure foreign languages, or being a mad genius at knife skills. My main action hero skill is that I am productive. That's a good thing since Ellen is a leading productivity consultant whose well-regarded book outlines how to get things done both efficiently and effectively. Or put another way, how to avoid avoiding accomplishing things or taking far more time than necessary to accomplish them. Ellen graduated from Gustavus in 1984 with a double major in political science and sociology and anthropology. After working in advertising, she embarked on a 20-year career as a freelance graphic designer for corporate clients. Then in 2013, she launched EllenGoodwin.com, her productivity consultancy, which has involved her in coaching, writing, speaking, and also podcasting as the co-host of the Faster, Easier, Better show. This work also led to a fun and interesting TEDx talk about her participant observer research in San Diego dive bars, about which more later. In short, Ellen is a wonderful example of how a liberal arts education at its best prepares one not for a particular job or career, but rather for success and fulfillment across a host of endeavors in the course of their life's journey. That and her quite interesting and useful work on productivity have made me eager for this conversation. So Ellen, welcome. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. And I should note that um, we have actually not met before. We're sort of meeting through this podcast and some previous emails, thanks to uh, another uh, Gustian alum, uh, Peter Smith, who lives in uh, the building where my wife and I live in downtown Minneapolis and gardens with us. And uh, you were saying you and Peter, he, he was a year ahead of you at Gustavus, I think you said. Yep, he was a year ahead. Yeah, so thank you. Shout out to Peter for... Uh, reconnecting or for connecting us after, I guess, uh, the two of you reconnected. After we reconnected. I haven't talked to him in years, so. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, there are, there's a lot of reconnecting going on during this, <laughs> this lockdown. Um, speaking of which, how are things, and you're in California, you're in San Diego, how are, how are things there? Is the whole state in a lockdown? Whole state's in a lockdown. I mean, there's parts that aren't, but um, Southern California is in a complete lockdown, restaurants closed. I mean, you still can get groceries, but um, it's very much shut down. Numbers are going up. And I saw something today that said that we might have this even longer. They were in a three-week shutdown and chances are it's going to go much, much longer. Uh, Here's to the vaccines, multiple vaccines coming quickly. Uh, my, yeah, my brother lives in in Los Angeles and it's in Sherman Oaks. It's It's a mess, he's been saying as well. How, I'm just curious, how has this affected your your work? Was, was a lot of your work already online or, or, or not? Um, it's affected me. Like, I've always worked out of a home office. So, you know, thus the book about how to work when no one's watching. So that yeah. didn't affect me that way. One of the things that it has affected is um, I no longer are doing in-person training programs. And speaking has shifted all to virtual. So any conferences or things like that, I'm not traveling to go to go to anywhere. The bright side to this is 
now that I'm not traveling, I'm looking at conferences in Europe and, and, you know, across the country where there's no worry about any sort of transportation issue because I'm just going to broadcast my speech, my presentation from my office. Right. Yeah. So there, yeah. So there's a, I'm trying to keep track of silver lines. Another one to my to my list, um, and maybe later we can talk about the impact on your thoughts about the impact on on work generally um, going going forward. But let, let's um, so where are you from? First of all, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, I'm from Brainerd, Minnesota, right smack sure. in the middle of, of Minnesota. Uh, born and raised there. My mother still lives in the house I grew up in. Um, yeah, went to Brainerd High School. Yeah, I've been to Brainerd just once. What um, now? Did you have other family members who went to Gustavus, or are you the first? I did not. My older sister and she went to Augustana in in Sioux Falls. Um, I worked with. I spent several summers working with a woman um, who went to Gustavus. So she was what, like three years ahead of me, and her brother went there. They were from Sox Center, and she talked about every summer we were counselors at a, a camp and she talked about it and, and all of that and kind of convinced me that I should check it out. And I was like one of those people that put it way off. I think I got accepted like in April, you know, yeah. I'd like almost graduated from high school and was like, oh yeah, I should mm-hmm. apply. Uh, but she, she loved it. I came down, checked the school out and I'm like, well, at least I'm going to know someone when I start. And right. she convinced you, me. That, I mean, I, I love all these stories. I learned podcasting about the place and the, the connections that are so important. I was, I was podcasting with a professor in dance recently. And the only reason she, um, historians, we talk about contingency, but the only reason she even thought to, knew to apply for a job at Gustavus, um, she was out of Utah at the time, was running into someone who, who was from there or knew something, someone there, something like that. So that's great. Um, did you, had you applied to the U or other places as well? Or were you just um, yes, not to the U. I was, I was definitely going private school. And, um, at that time I was all looking at schools for pre-law and oh. I can't even think of where else I applied to, but, uh, I'd gotten into four or five, but hadn't committed to any of them when I've finally applied for Gustavus. So, um, yeah, my whole, my whole trajectory was pre-law. So that was the filter I was looking at every school through. And that, so that explains, I assume the poli-sci major, did you kind of know that that's what you wanted to major in already or? Yes. I I started out as doing econ and poli-sci, uh, and after my first semester economics, I'm like, that is so not happening. Um, I have no idea why I thought that was a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I took, I remember, I don't even know if I stuck out the one, one economics course. I, <laughs> I went to Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, big, big state school, but um, I don't, I know, I know, I, at least I signed up for one. I'm not, I don't think I finished it for the same reason. The math, <laughs> the math part was just killing me. I was never doing that. Um, yeah. the, so then you... Um, Let's see, were those the days of Ron Christensen? I'm trying to think who he Ron Christensen was, yep, he, was he my, yes, he was my advisor. And mm-hmm. um, gosh, who was my sociology? Why, um, why can't I Maybe think of his name? Rick Gilbert or John Preen. John Preen. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Loved him. Yeah, um, he passed away, unfortunately. Some yeah, ago. I knew that. And that was very sad. Yeah. He, um, yeah, no, there are some, just some great, great props. Ron was, Ron was a kind of uh, informal mentor to Kate and me uh, when we came. I love talking about political trials and um, we had some students in common. But uh, from there, so was, what about Don Ostrom? Was he there at that point too? Don oh, was Don there. was there, yes. Oh, yeah, Don Ostrom. Run, we run into him up here. He and his wife, Florence, sometimes up in Minneapolis where Kate and I live. But um, how do you, so how, how, how about Sochanthra? How did you get from Poli Sci to there? That's a good question. And, you know, looking back through the filter of whatever 40 years ago, um, I have no idea. Yeah, I wonder. It just it's. Um, I mean, it makes sense. You know, looking looking back, or looking forward from there to what you're doing now, the both majors, uh, I think, probably inform your work in all kinds of ways. We can we can talk more about that. But um, yeah, we had a really we still have a good good social anthro uh, program at Gustavus. Um, oh, I loved I just, it. I thought yeah. it was great. <laughs> Well, I want, actually, that's one of the things I want to ask you about. If you don't mind, I'm, I'm making you think back. Um, but are there, are there certain experiences, whether they're academic or not, uh, from your years at Gustavus that stand out in your mind? And good, bad, ugly, it doesn't matter. Well, um, one, of my, one of my favorites is, you know, back during the Nobel conferences and mm-hmm. uh, having breakfast, because it one of, the, one of the years, and it must have been... A, wouldn't it have been my senior year? Because my senior year, I was off campus in the fall. So it would have been like probably my junior. And the uh, whatever the topic was, it had to deal with anthropology. Richard Leakey was there. Um, oh, yeah. Well, that's a famous one. I've read, I've, I wasn't there yet, but I've read it. I've read the proceedings. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen Jay Gould. Um, yeah. Right. So we had breakfast. The, the, the people in, in the major, we got to sit down and have breakfast with him. And, you know, at the time, I didn't realize, holy cow, <laughs> who I'm sitting down and having breakfast with. But I, it, it really stuck in my mind of, of, you know, what they talked about and just to just, hey, here, I'm a college student sitting with you yeah. having breakfast. I, yeah, I was a huge fan. Like so many, still know Stephen Jay Gould um, before I even heard of his name, before I took the job and interviewed and took the job, was offered the job. But um that's one of the things that, again, made me want to come, reading about the Nobel Conference and seeing that. I just remember vividly looking at that lineup and thinking, wow, this is really cool. And it's still going strong. Uh, I podcasted with uh, Lisa Helke of the philosophy department who now directs it. And she, she has her own podcast called Science Wise, W-H-Y-S, which I urge everyone to listen to. It's fantastic. And it features um, people who've come to the different Nobel, Nobel conferences. Very cool. Um, Still, yeah, it's still incredible uh, the impact it has on, uh, you know, not only Gustavus students, but also on uh, high school students who come, you know, from near and far as well. So, yeah, that's a really cool thing about the college that I still love. And I think Lisa was telling me that everything is going to be, uh, I think everything is going to be digitized or something like that or recorded. It's all available now. Uh, oh, so wow. The miracles of yeah, modern tech. Yeah. yeah. That's neat. Um, I'm envious, too. I mean, I would love to have sat down with those two. Um, so after you graduate in 84, what did you do? Did you go right into the advertising world at that point? Or no. So we'd have to go backwards a little bit. Um, yeah. my senior year, um, 
one of my last internships, because I did several different internships with several different law firms and things, because I'm still on at this point, still on the the pre-law trajectory. So um, fall of my senior year, so that would have been, well, what, 83, I went and worked for the Public Defender's Office of Washington, D.C., Oh, wow. Thinking that, you know what, this is like the coolest thing ever. Um, wow. And and it was. It was fantastic. Yeah, uh, they they work out of a building that, it, well, it's in Federal Triangle. It's the building that Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation in. Right. Yes, exactly. Uh, and then some of the people I worked with, the attorneys, they have gone on to amazing, amazing things. And I got to say I knew them when. Uh, but by the end of the, <laughs> that semester, I knew that I was just not going to be a lawyer. I was bored. I was really <laughs> bored. And, and we were doing interesting, interesting law stuff. Um, and I just knew that that was not my course of action for the next 30, 40 years of my life. So I returned to Gustavus in January of 84, not having a plan because all of a sudden, you know, I'd already taken my law school exams. My plan had been to apply to school, you know, as soon as I graduated, then the next year I was going to go to law school. But I came back and uh, basically I had pulled the rug out from under myself because I had nothing. So I did the last semester not knowing what I was going to do. And, um, I graduated, went back home for the summer, worked at the camp, and mm-hmm. decided since I already knew people in Washington, D.C., and I didn't want to stay in Brainerd, I was going to head back there and see what happened. So I m- moved to D.C. in September, and I stayed there for about three and a half years sorting things out. And so I initially was a writer for a company that dealt with timeshares. And uh, I'm not really much, I wasn't at that time much of a writer, more of a reporter is what they needed. And after that, I managed a small boutique toy store in Georgetown, which was fantastic. And after that, I worked at AARP for a while. And it was there that I finally decided I was going to go to art school and made the decision to go to art school out in California, in La Jolla. Um, They had a one-year advertising arts program. So I flew out here not knowing anyone, flew out on a Friday, started school on Monday. And the plan was to be here for a year, finish school, go back to Minneapolis, which at the time was pretty much the advertising mecca that everyone wanted to be there. Fallon McGilligot was the name of the ad agency that was just taking the world by a storm. Right. Uh, And then I met my future (laughs) ex-husband. And and I ended up staying. And uh, that's when I got into advertising. So we're looking at uh, three, four years after I left Gustavus is when I got into advertising, but I had a fabulous three or four years doing other interesting things. Yeah, no, it's great. I, just if you could see me, I mean, you know, don't see one. I don't know, some, maybe some podcast people see each other, but not this one. But anyway, I just have a huge grin on my face. I love the story because one, okay, some students come, 
right? And feel, my God, I have to have everything planned out. I must know from day one what I'm going to do at Gustavus or in college and thereafter. And, you know, you maybe weren't that extreme, but, you, you know, you sort of knew, right? I had this plan and then it all just... You, you self-destructed the plan <laughs> and you're fine and it's great. And you went on. And I just think it's so important for students and parents, but to, to understand that, right. You don't, even if you think you have it all figured out, something could happen that, um, you know, changes what you would plan to do. And that's, that leads me to the point about internship. I think internships are, you know, I have mixed feelings about when they're unpaid and all of that stuff, but still they're so important. I've, I've seen over the years for students to discover not what they want to do, but what they, you know, don't want to do. Right? Don't really- want to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it can it must save a lot of misery. Because um, I, I, my experience is many more students come out of an internship saying, you know, that was really a valuable experience, but it's not what I want to do. <laughs> so- oh, yeah. I am so grateful for my experience because, yeah, I, I saved myself years of misery, lots yeah. of money, and lots of frustration. Right. And the way you, um, you don't know if you describe yourself as adventurous or, but you sound adventurous to me, <laughs> or at least compared to, compared to the way I was and still am, certainly the way I was at that age, but, um, you know, that you just were able to pick up, right? There had to be some, you had to have some confidence, right? In your ability to, to. But you can call it confidence. <laughs> I'm, yeah. you know, in retrospect. Youthful recklessness. I don't know. Yeah. You know I'd go with yeah. that. <laughs> So um, you were so you were actually in an art, uh, an advertise, art and advertising program. Is that what you were saying? It's something weird. Yeah, it was um, not necessarily a like a vocational school. It was a private, you uh-huh. know, for profit school uh, yeah. that taught advertising arts such as they were back then. I mean, this was computers were just showing up, which makes me sound old. No, uh, here. Same here. What's that? I was going to say the same here. I mean, there was, we had one clunky IBM. (laughs) Hard to believe. Yeah. Uh, But, but um, the whole idea was that it prepared you for whatever kind of advertising you were going to, going to go into, whether it was print or radio or television. I mean, it was a very comprehensive program and, uh, you know, some people left and went to really high level, you know, even today they're still in, high-level advertising agencies. So it was very much, you know, go to school. I went to school in the morning and then had a part-time job in the afternoon and then would spend nights doing my art projects, whatever I had to get done. You were were on the creative side of advertising. uh, Yes. Yeah. um, And so then after that, did you, I mean, did you then just start actively seeking, why did it work? Did you just apply to advertising firms or what, what did you do? Yeah, um, I started with a, with a company where other graduates were in from that mm-hmm. program and they kind of, you know, like, hey, I'm working here. Why don't you apply here? And uh, the first couple jobs weren't, you know, <laughs> like the glamorous ad agencies, uh, yeah. but it, it was really what I needed. You know, in retrospect, this is you're, you're building up to things and then uh, got a job working in um, in-house agency for a hotel chain. And hmm. from there, I ended up going to a, a full service ad agency where we represented like 
the gas and electric company and a hospital chain. And for a while we had the San Diego Padres. So it was a full advertising agency like you would see on a television show. Like in in that show called Mad Men. (laughs) (laughs) There were some parallels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. Yeah, coming to the industry line. I have a, um, a good friend's son worked here. He's still in advertising, now with Red Wing Shoes, doing really cool stuff. But he was with uh, Fallon for a time here. In oh, okay. So I, uh, my dad was a hairdresser, and he, for a time, worked for a company here. When I was a little kid, my brother and I, uh, called Maxims, and it was in the Fauché Tower. But my dad always talked about Minneapolis being progressive in terms of um, – you know, hair, care, hair, which is, I think, still true. And, but also in terms of advertising. Yeah. Maybe it's lost some of that luster. I don't know. In terms, But, but, but yeah, something, place like Fallon, I mean, wow, I mean, huge, huge agency. Yeah, and it's the, interesting uh, you said Red Wing uh, Shoes because George Sweezy went to Gustavus, whose family oh, I, owns it. Yes, also interesting, right. Yeah, I just wish... Um, I wish I were as stylish as this young man who works in advertising. <laughs> he wear the shoes and look good in them. I, I don't think I look so good. <laughs> that's, another, that's another podcast. Um, were there things you really liked about about that world? Or, 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 or oh, absolutely! I loved uh, I loved meeting with the clients and and the interaction between you know the creative side and the you know the client side and the account executives and the craziness that all went with it where you know just understanding how people communicated because you know the whole idea where the count would come in count side and they'd be like we need this now and you're like well we got to come up with ideas and we don't just pull those out of a hat it's going to take some time so um i did i very much enjoyed being in the agency did you work on a particular campaign or campaigns that you remember fondly? No. <laughs> like I said, I, I think I was mostly on the the hospital chain and the gas and electric company. So uh, it wasn't oh, like, hey, I did Coca-Cola. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the um, I'm thinking now hospitals and COVID, oh boy, they need, they need more than advertising. The um, So what, what led you to... Sort of reinvent yourself. I mean, how how many years were you in advertising? More than more than ten? Or oh yeah. Um, if you combine the time that I worked in agencies and the time that I ran my own, um, over twenty five, thirty. So counting counting when you were doing the uh, the graphic design. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it was a long time, and uh, I reinvented myself when I uh, basically almost lost my business because I started just procrastinating on things. And there was no, there was no watershed moment where I was like, yeah, I'm going to stop doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, I just started not doing what I was supposed to be. I was, I was divorced at the time. No one, no one was watching me. No one knew what I was doing. I mean, I was only responsible to the clients and in my mind, if I got this stuff done today or tomorrow, it was fine. Uh, and so this whole procrast I call it the pit of procrastination. And once right. I fell down that pit and I almost lost the business is when I started really looking at where procrastination comes from, what is going on. I mean, I'm a smart person and I was doing this. I was just procrastinating and losing clients. And that's when I started 
doing a lot of research and education, training, and learning. Basically, it's, you know, it all comes from our brain doing weird things. And after that, I put together some tools and systems I used and got myself out of that pit of procrastination, got the business back up and running. But people were noticing what I was doing and and how I was getting things done. And I got a lot of requests to help them out. And it just flowed from there. Yeah, that's great. It's a great story. And um, before I knew what you had majored in, knowing knowing just knowing your current work, I wondered had you majored in psychology or even, I guess maybe Gustavus didn't yet have a neuroscience program at that point. No. I'm sure it would. But, but I, I let, let's, this is exactly where I wanted to head. So, um, and of course I've never procrastinated. Never, never. <laughs> no one does. It's just you know, me. Put a, put a, yeah. Put a pile of student papers in front of me and I just, I'm ready to dive right in. Yeah. The, um, why, so why do we procrastinate? Why do people procrastinate? And oh. I suppose there's one reason. And I guess what I'm getting at before we talk about, how to be productive, which is what your your work is about. We maybe talk a little bit about what makes us unproductive. Well, it's um, it basically comes down to your midbrain and the limbic system. And your limbic system is the oldest part of your brain. It's you know some people call it the lizard brain, or it gets called the monkey mind. It's the part of your brain that's there to protect you. It's you know that uh, the fight or flight response lives there. And one of the key points to your limbic system is it loves the comfort zone. And the comfort zone is the safest place you can be. And unfortunately, you know, that's that's evolved from, oh, I'm going to be safe and I'm not going to get eaten by a large animal to mm-hmm. the point where, oh, look, I'm safe on the couch watching Netflix. And the brain wants us to be comfortable. And I truly believe that is where procrastination comes from because we default to comfort, whether it's not doing something we perceive as hard or it's just, hey, my whole body's comfortable. I'm laying on the couch. Um, Maybe I'm playing video games. My body, the whole body state is comfort. And there's no reason for me to get out of this comfort zone because I'm safe. So it's neurological and physiological, it sounds like, uh, and I suppose psychological. <laughs> fascinating. You, so you really, I mean, you didn't study this formally, right? You were just reading up on, on, on the brain and, and am I right about that? Yeah, so I, didn't, I didn't go back to school. Yeah. Uh, to to get this. No, I, I did, you know, I've done some trainings with uh, neuroscientists, uh, but I haven't, yeah, didn't go back and, hey, let's get another degree. Yeah, I'm a. We probably have read some of the same books in common, I imagine. Although I have read not read nearly as much as you, but I, I find it fascinating how, how our brain works, and also you know the layperson's knowledge, and, and also how it tricks us, and as you kind of say, works against us. Yeah. Um, now, in my own case, that comfort is accompanied by a lot of guilt. <laughs> um, you know, why am I not? grading those papers you know why am i um and i suppose um you know different people respond differently to that and what i like about your your approach to productivity you make it quite clear one there's no there's no there's no one way right Mm -hmm. i mean there are principles you can talk more about those we'll get to those but but you know 
different different approaches for different people. In other words, well, you're not you're not saying one size fits all, as, as I understand your your um, book. Which, by the way, I highly recommend. We'll plug for the book, which is available on Amazon. Um, recommended. The um, yeah. so let, let's talk a little bit about that. So you know this concept of action hero. I found interesting, and you make a distinction, which I think is important, between an action hero and a superhero. Tell us a little bit about the difference. Well, superheroes usually came from other planets. They have superpowers they can you know turn to, except for Batman, um, because his is all toys <laughs> that he has. But superpower, superpowers, you know, superheroes have these superpowers, but action heroes. Um, Action heroes are using what they have. They don't have a superpower. Indiana Jones, perfect example of an action hero. He's got no special powers. He has just put things together. He understands how to do things. And he's just, that's just inside of him. And there's, you know, any other action hero, they're in action. They're assessing the situation and doing what they need to do to find the solution and overcome the problem. They're not relying on any magic. Right. And I like that. That appeals to me as a, as a teacher, um, the word action, uh, because I think that learning is action. Te- teaching, of course, is what learning is also action. Mm-hmm. Learning is absorbing stuff, but it, take, it takes action or engagement is kind of the word of the day, I guess, in, among educators. But so the... Tell us a little bit about your the, the, the sort of principles involved in your in your approach. Um, without you know, let's see, we don't want to we don't want to make this a free consultation, <laughs> but to the extent that you can, your your program. So you're you're trying to help me. I'm an entrepreneur, would be entrepreneur, maybe I'm because you you mostly work with entrepreneurs. Is that true right now? Um, you know, I pretty much work with anyone that that has issues, not issues like the wrong word, challenges. Uh, A lot of the people I end up working, I do work with are obviously solopreneurs and even authors and artists, anyone that's, that is finding it hard to, to get going. So I I hate to be that person. Like I help everyone because everyone, you always hear, Oh, you have to niche down. But um, technically it kind of comes back to to that, that it's whoever, is finding themselves not getting things done. Okay. Well, so I'm that person, uh, especially when it comes to grading. Um, what do you, how do you help me? What, what, what do I need to do to avoid procrastinating? Um, especially for me, it's especially around tasks that I feel might wind up disappointing. <laughs> there are always some fabulous student papers. And then there are some that you just think, oh no, what did I do wrong? as a teacher. But in all seriousness, what would you, what would you counsel? So, um, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. I, I just, fine. I just switched something over. Um, okay. what would I counsel you for getting your papers done? <laughs> well, I would say, don't look at it as such a huge project because I think that's probably one of the things you do, right? True. Yeah. So figure out a way to make a game out of it. And one of those is, is maybe it's just, okay, today, you know, this hour, I'm going to move the papers oops, to the center of my desk and they're going to be there. So when I'm ready, they're there. That's it. Hmm. Uh, 
Next, you're going to set a timer. And I'm going to look at I'm going to look at papers for 10 minutes. And as far as I get in 10 minutes, that's perfect. And then I'll go do something else and I'll come back and set a timer again. And I'm a huge believer in using uh, like kitchen timers, not the timer on your phone, because the timer on your phone, every time you touch your phone, it becomes a moment of choice. And that moment of choice is whether you do what you're supposed to be doing or you give in to temptation and you oh, hey, let me, let me check and see what, what's, uh, you know, my notifications. Let me go over there. So, right. so um, I'm a big believer in using a kitchen timer. I also use a timer. They're called MOA timers, and they're just a square, and it's got different numbers on each side, and you just turn it up. Like, say, I want to do 30 minutes. I turn it so the 30's up, then I turn it face down, and it automatically starts timing. So again, there's no moment of choice where I decide, hey, I'm setting a timer. It's just, I go. So I would do 10, 15 minutes, just time yourself. You're playing a game with your brain because your brain goes, oh, I'm not going to do this all day. There's not, it's not going to take my whole day to do this. And it, you know, in 10 minute increments, it's going to take a while, but it's not going to end up taking the whole day and you aren't going to put it off as much as you would. I am literally feeling better already. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, all, all props work differently, but I am one of those people who once I start, I feel I, I must finish, you know, I must spend. So I'll spend sometimes six or seven hours in a row. It's crazy. Right. And I mean, it's, I'm not, not productive. I'm actually, I'm probably a lot less productive than, than I would be doing it. The, the way you just described that makes a lot of sense to me right um, well I'll tell you right now oh I was gonna say right now uh end of the year cleaning out uh we've just not discovered I've always known they're there but I've got years and years of receipts and tax forms um that I need to keep for my business, but after you know seven years, you can get rid of them. And right. so I've got several years of stuff and it needs to be shredded. It's it's not like the shredding places are available right now to us. So I'm just I have all the everything just stacked by my desk and I set my timer for five minutes at at a pop and I shred for five minutes, which is enough to fill up a bag. And then I go do something else. So I'm attacking it five minutes at a time and it works. And so you're not, and so you're not, it's not multitasking. Nope. Um, come back to actually, but it's, it's, but it's also not, I must stay with this one task for, you know, two or three hours until I finish it. It's not that. Um, and again, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. What about multitasking? I think I read mm-hmm. something where you, this is my, you tell me if I'm wrong. My, I heard someone on the radio on one of these podcasts. I was listening to driving down to the state. It was from Minneapolis. And that it's, it's a, the, we actually can't multitask. Is, is this true? I mean, we think we can, and it actually we wind up being very, very unproductive as a result. That's exactly true. We cannot multitask. You can do things like you could make dinner and listen to a podcast because you're doing two different sort of things. But, um, and neither one is is like, oh, I have to be precise with this. You know, and you can, if you're listening to a podcast while you're making dinner, you may not pick up everything. You, It's okay if you kind of wander. But if you're trying to work, it just, 
doesn't work. Uh, I always liken it to uh, your brain is a house. Just imagine your brain is a house. And the only place that you can listen, you know, whether it's to someone on the phone or to a conference call, the only way, only place you can do that is in the living room. And the only place you could read or listen is if you're in the bedroom. I'm not listen, but you could, you could read and understand. You're going to read in the bedroom, listen and talk in the living room. And, but you can't do both at the same time because you can't be in two rooms at once. So if you were, let's say uh, you're reading your email and a phone call comes in and you don't stop reading and you keep listening and talking after a while, you don't know what you're reading and you don't know what you're saying or hearing. I think we've all done that before. Distracts my day. So, so um, what's going on is is you're trying to be in both rooms at the same time, and you have to go back and forth between the rooms. You're listening, you're reading, you're listening, you're reading, and you're using up energy. And you're using up time because you have to go back and forth. You have to remember, oh, what was I saying? What were we talking about? Or what was I reading? So you're going back and forth, using up energy, using up time, and you're not being efficient. And that's what multitasking is. So Yeah, it's, it's, it winds up being a waste of time in, in some ways and a waste of energy, too. And you're right. I mean, that feel, I know that feeling so well where you... Um, so many of the stories where you're actually tired, you know, you, you, you think, what have I just done? Yeah. Hours of why I've done, I've done a lot of, you know, sounds, I kid yourself, right? Multitasking, but what have I really accomplished? And, you know, it's it, not a whole lot. Um, <laughs> so again, that makes, that makes a lot. What about for you, you, um, I'm trying to think back to the book. You talk about action and energy. What are the other uh, core components? Oh, of your action, it's action, uh, Action, energy, and focus. Those are the three parts. Action, uh, because there's a difference between action and motion, and people get confused with them. And you need to be in action to get things done, not just in motion. And motion would be if I decided today that I was I was going to get in shape. And so I went online and I printed out like a full on menu of what I'm going to eat every day. And then I printed out exercises. These are the exercises I'm going to do. All well and good, but I've been completely in motion because I haven't done one thing to move a muscle, to do something better. I've just been in motion. I turn to action when I actually start following that diet and I, I do my first sit up. I, do a couple of push-ups, then I'm in action. That also makes a great deal of sense because you're in motion and God knows I've done this. I mean, kidding mm-hmm. myself that I'm being productive, but I'm not being productive. I'm in, I'm in motion. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people like the whole idea of uh, making a to-do list, that's, that's right. motion at its finest. It's necessary, but you have to know when to stop being in motion and move into action. Well, I wondered about that. I wondered if you were an advocate of, because I've heard both, I've heard it both argued both ways, whether you were an advocate of of the to-do list. I am. It depends. 
again, there's no one size fits all. And that goes for people and it goes for your days as well. Because some days there's it's going to be fine to have a full on list of this is what I'm going to get done. And other days, maybe all you need is a, a to don't list, which is a list of things you're not going to do. You know, I'm not going to waste time on the internet. I'm not going to be taking calls between this time. Sometimes it's just having an outcome list, which is, I just use a sticky note and I put down the five things that have to be accomplished that day. I don't make notes about how I'm going to do it. Everything I do during the day is going to be focused on making sure that those five things get done. So um, they just, you change your your to-do list to match your day. Got it. And where does energy come into this? That's the next Ah, energy. Well, everyone has different energy patterns, but for the most part, they're all very similar. Um, You know, we have the, the early birds and you have the night owls and early birds, you know, you get up, you have all this big surge of energy in the morning you have a little slump in the afternoon and then another little surge at the end of the day Uh, night owls have that same pattern but it's backwards which is an interesting thing and the key is to know what your energy pattern is not not when you get up whether you're a night owl or or an early bird Uh, but it's to know what your pattern your personal energy pattern is and to leverage that as much as you can. So that would mean, you know, in the morning, I'm most creative. So that's when I do my writing. That's when I, I rarely will take meetings. Uh, but I know in the afternoon, that, you know what, that's a perfect time for me to do research, to send emails, to, to sit in a meeting. I'm not giving up my my creative time. I'm not giving up the time where I'm I'm the best. So it's knowing and leveraging your energy as best you can. And I know some people can do that better than others given work constraints and things like that. But we can all do it to some effect. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, I like the knowing and leveraging. I think obviously <laughs> I'm a morning I'm the, I'm the early bird for sure. Then focus, um, I, I think I know where you're going to go, but let, let's tell us a little bit. So what, what, what does focus mean? Well, focus means doing what you need to do with no outside distractions or minimizing distractions. And I get a lot of people, they're like, yeah, you know, I just can't, I can't focus for hours and hours and no one can. So that argument goes right out the window. We can only focus for a short when I say short, 90 minutes is pretty much the outer edge of really concentrated focus time. So I don't say you have to do that all the time. I just believe that you set a time limit of, of, let's say I'm going to work for 30 minutes on this. I'm not going to have any distractions. And at the end of the 30 minutes, I'll take a break and then I'll come back and do it again if I need to. But it's, it's knowing what you want to do during that time, what the limit is, eliminating distractions, and then just doing your work without outside influence, outside problems. And that, I, I thought you would bring up distractions. And that, man, it just seems like the distractions are, are so much greater than um, 
you know, then even when, when you were in college, oh, I was in college. <laughs> there were just, my God. So, yeah, and I, I mean, I'm certainly guilty of that. I, I sometimes manage to shut off my phone and shut off my computer, but too often I'm working and, you know, stealing a glance at the incoming email. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's when hours can go by. Oh, I know. You <laughs> <laughs> all know. So, um, I mean, it must be incredibly challenging, especially if you're dealing with people who, whose work depends on on the internet and on online. I mean, what what tips to focus well, on? You just shut down. I mean, uh, I block. I block things. I use I I use a blocker, a computer blocker called self control, and oh, it allows <laughs> it allows me to pick whatever I want to block, whatever apps or programs, um, and for however long I want to block them. And once I've said it, I can't just go, okay, nope, I want to go back. So it's it's a pretty solid you know, application that will keep me away from the things that I know I get distracted by. And so that allows you to, it sounds like that, you're not shutting your computer no, off. No, uh-uh. Okay, so that that also sounds good. <laughs> no, I've uh, I've got a full list of blockers for phones and computers, and I I believe they might oh, even the be on my website. I'm not sure. Oh, I'll check it out. The um, I'm more I'm kind of laughing at myself. And I'll be more productive already this spring. <laughs> um, so, but in all seriousness, the um, the other thing I I, I I like about your uh, well, let me back up. So I did some. Uh, training in labor history in graduate school. And you may know this too, when one thinks of productivity in terms of workers, let's say on the factory floor, uh, particularly think of Taylorism back in the early 20th century, you know, the Frederick Winslow Taylor with a stopwatch, you know, and, and or Charlie Chaplin in modern times, let's turn Charlie into a, let's automate Charlie <laughs> essentially, be more productive. But as I, correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand what I've read in your book, I mean, all of this isn't an end in and of itself, right? The point isn't just to be more productive for the sake of no. being Yeah, Talk a little bit about no, that. No, I'm a firm believer in that if you can get the things done that you have to do and do them efficiently, you're going to have more time for the things you want to do. And so productivity just, it makes your life better because I don't want it to make you crazy, like you know, the Charlie Chaplin thing. Uh, but you get things done more efficiently. You're happier because you have more time to do the things you want to do, whatever that might be. Yeah. Is there, now let me ask you this. Is there, and I hear I'm thinking of Walt Whitman, and his, I can't remember if it was actually a poem, but I'm loathing. <laughs> <laughs> is there a case for, and, and maybe you're already starting to answer, is there a case for being unproductive? I mean, are, is, are we being unproductive when we are, you know, walking or, or whatever we're doing mm-hmm. not related to work? I mean, is there any, any case for being unproductive? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, with your example, walking, it's a wonderful time for your brain to just be able to ruminate, for lack of a better word, to to have things float around in your brain and new connections being made. It's... It's great to sit and daydream. It's great to meditate. All of those things, you know, don't sound like you're getting things done, but you're doing amazing things at that point because your brain 
it's it's like turning your computer off and letting it do its thing because you don't want your computer on all the time and you don't want your brain on all the time. So there's definitely a case to be made for being unproductive at times. Yeah, I thought that's what you would say just based on what I read. And it make, again, makes, makes so much sense. Now, speaking of being unproductive and productive, uh, your TEDx talk on <laughs> dive bomber. <laughs> I urge, I urge people to watch. It's, 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 I mean, it's entertaining as, as all good TED Talks are and, and illuminating too. Um, I'm, I'm not as familiar with dive bars as you are, um, but I do like certain, I guess they'd be called dive bars. First, why don't you give us the definition as you do in the talk? What's a dive bar? How do you define well, it? Well, one of the things is there's no real definition of a dive bar. It's sort of like... Uh, it's, it's a Supreme Court ruling on pornography. It's you know it when you see it. But dive bars are traditionally neighborhood bars that have, because of time circumstance, have become just, it's not the place you go for high level drinks or fabulous, you know, you, you don't want to pick stuff up off the floor if you drop it <laughs> in really good dive bars. So um, they're just... They're good bars to go to. You're comfortable, you're relaxed, you meet interesting people. Uh, they have photos on the wall of the regulars. They take care of each other. It's a place to go. Yeah, Cheers was not wrong. Cheers was not a dive bar, but Cheers was not wrong. It's, it's the regulars, everybody knows their name. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. There's a place here um, now, now shut down that my wife and I love to go to we go almost every week on a friday and you know, felt felt like a cheers just oh man so so rejuvenating at the end of a, at the end of a work week um so now one would one would assume that going to a dive bar of course has nothing to do with productivity but that is not not the case you make and i'm curious too about so talk a little bit about that but also how i mean did you come to do your research if we can use that word in dive bars um, out of your work on productivity, or you were already a dive bar uh, <laughs> fan? Uh, so we've been running a dive bar of the month club for over 10 years. Our 10th anniversary was this March. And of course, we didn't get to celebrate it because the week we were going to have our 10th anniversary celebration at a dive bar, uh, all, the, all the bars, didn't matter if they were dives or not. It, they shut down, but we've been doing it for over 10 years. And, you know, once a month, we take a group of people to a dive bar. And so the research just came about from being there and, and seeing, you know, I guess my sociology degree pulled in there because seeing how things went, how, how people interacted. And that is one of the things that I believe is it, all productivity is human interaction and and dive bars are wonderful places to see human interaction on all levels in in a wonderful environment you um just gave me the title i think i'll, I'll think about it for the podcast here all, all productivity is human interaction um and i yeah you you elaborate on that so well in the talk and again i found it so so interesting and of course you know because so many of us would think dive bar productivity you know. but in a way maybe it's like what we what you were just saying about being unproductive mm -hmm. right it seems unproductive but incredibly important to to productivity um i i, I find i always find it energizing to talk with people i don't know 
assuming they're, you know, more or less free. Right. <laughs> I, I, and that's one of the things about the podcast. I just love it. I, I, I just energize it so I can relate to what you're saying. Um, what about, you know, I, I do want to talk, I know we're running close to the, we're nearing the end here, but I would, I know you're not an expert on work per se, but I wonder if you've thought about how COVID-19, its impact on work, office work in particular. Um, I was just talking to someone in the business world uh, the other night who would normally be in his office in downtown Minneapolis and isn't. And, you know, I've, I've talked to people who say, well, you know, that's done. That's never going to come back. People are going to be working at home now. Um, do, you, do you have any thoughts about that and how COVID-19 is or isn't affecting productivity? Well, from a lot of the things I've been reading and seeing is that actually productivity for a lot of people is up working at home because they're they're not spending the time commuting. They're not having to do things that, you know, they're not having to go sit in meetings. Although, you know, of course the Zoom meeting is truly a thing. But uh, a lot of people are finding that without the distraction of office work, they are getting more things done. Now, you add in a lot of people also are dealing with kids not being in school, and that yeah. changes the dynamic. But I think a lot of people are going to push for working at home when this is all over. And I think a lot of businesses are seeing that their greatest fear, which was people not getting work done when they weren't supervised, is is not a true fear because people are doing just fine without a manager looking over their shoulder. And yeah, it's it's showing that people, you know, for lack of a better word, can be trusted, that they are still productive, that they still want to get their work done. And I do think it's going to change how a lot of businesses work. And I think it's going to make it easier for people to make the case for, hey, I should be able to work from home or be location independent. Those are really, I think, fascinating and important observations. And beware managerial class, we may not need you anymore. But yeah, I, I, what you said about trust, right, that, you know, people are not, I mean, it's like, I'm thinking as a labor historian here, you know, the, the old struggle for the 10-hour day, yeah. well, no, we can't give you 10 hours because you're going to squander, you know, it was a 12-hour day, right? you're going to squander that time and not use it, you, you won't be productive. Yeah, um, I've read a little bit, not as much as you, but I have seen that mentioned that productivity rates are are up so yeah it's fascinating the the part for me that i would miss um of course i'm a teacher so in person is is incredibly important in liberal arts college obviously but i'm thinking even as an office worker i would miss sort of the you know the schmoozing right maybe that right. maybe that's part of the important unproductive so-called unproductive part but the you know interacting with my colleagues um on a, on a kind of daily basis at, at quote unquote at the office right so, oh sure yeah, I would miss that. Um, and I'm enough of a city guy that I hope I hope office workers will come back. If only so we can have food trucks again down there. <laughs> we'll see. Well, I feel like this has been a productive conversation. I think so. so. Um, thank you so much. It's been great to talk. Um, you've helped me already. I think I'll, I'm going to buy one of those timers or maybe use the kitchen stove timer or something. But uh, seriously, it's been a pleasure. Your work is really interesting, and I like how it's informed by 
uh, you know, you're, you're reading about, studying about the brain, right? It's grounded in, in, in science, and I think that's really, really important and also quite fascinating. Thank you. So, yeah, my pleasure. Good luck with everything. Um, glad you're an alum. It's been great to have you. And uh, when you come back to Minneapolis, or I've only been to San Diego once, my wife and I, but when we will hook up in person someday, it would be, be Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, my productivity. <laughs> well, I'm always available. You can reach out to me. I'll help you with anything. Thanks so much, Ellen. Take good care. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Gustavus graduate Will Clark, class of 20, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College.